0: Hello and welcome to the Late Discovered Club, the podcast that aims to give late discovered autistic women a voice. We bring you real-life self-discovery stories and compassionate conversations with some truly incredible women. Created and hosted by me, psychotherapist Catherine Astor, whose own self-discovery came at 42. With the behind the scenes technical expertise coming from my eldest daughter, Katie Ava. This podcast really is a mum and daughter collaboration. So our guest today on our first ever episode is me, the founder of the Late Discovered Club. Having always been the champion of other people's stories, on this first episode, I share and champion some of my own story exploring how I got here, why this podcast matters, and with a call to action to you, the listener, to be the change. I've always been the champion of other people's stories, but I thought it was time to champion some of my own story. And in this first episode, it's just me bravely and vulnerably sharing some of my late discovery story with you because I want to lead this podcast by example and it turns out that I have quite a lot I want to say. And in future episodes, I will be bringing you real and empowering stories of late discovered autistic women from all walks of life on their journey of self-discovery because as a narrative psychology advocate, I know that there is real power in our stories, that our stories can become the lights of hope on someone else's dark runway, and that my story, your story, and our collective stories have the power to bring about change. And the hope is that this podcast not only gives late-discovered autistic women a voice, but that the conversations help to break down stereotypes and the stigma that exists about autism in society as well as providing the next generation of autistic women with some insights into incredible women, women who are embracing their differences, giving them access to role models many generations of autistic women have never had. And my story today begins almost a decade ago when I was working as an NHS strategist on the 15-year strategy for the NHS and completely oblivious to my neurotype, I hit burnout. And it was at that point that I made the really scary decision to take a great leap into the unknown, into self-employment and to switch careers and to follow my dream of becoming a psychotherapist. And my drive was to create a compassionate space to sit in the dark with women, championing their stories and bringing Sparkle back and to find a better way of working that was more attuned to my needs. And over those last seven years, I've worked with hundreds of women. I've spent thousands and thousands of hours bringing Sparkle back. I was a resident psychotherapist for three years on the Stephanie Hurst BBC Radio Leads show, a regular on BBC Radio 5 Live. I've represented UN Women as an ambassador. I've been awarded a fellow by my professional body for my commitment to the profession. I've created and nurtured communities, namely Girl Tribe Gang and the Lake Discovered Club. I've contributed my insights and experience right across the media. I've collaborated with brands such as John Lewis. I've been a columnist for The Flock magazine. And I've studied for and gained my psychology master's during the pandemic. All this in and amongst to giving birth to my second daughter, Christina, in 2017. And all that reads like a success story. And it is given my own starting point and the adversity that I've faced in my life and I'm immensely proud of those achievements but underneath it all there have been many struggles. Struggles that people and others haven't seen, struggles that I've kept hidden and struggles that I'd normalised. I don't know whether autism found me or I found autism But I've been on my own self-discovery journey for the last few years, in parallel with supporting more and more women in therapy on their own self-discovery journeys. In that time, I've read, I've explored, I've studied, and I've been immersed in the world of autism and autistic stories. At 42, the penny finally dropped for me, and I realised that I had crafted and built a very elaborate mass to enable me to live in a world that really wasn't built for my brain, And it had become a heavy survival strategy to maintain. I discovered that I'm autistic with a generous sprinkling of ADHD, which means that my neurodivergent brain works in a different way. Not in a lesser way, just a different way. And it processes the world differently too. So my brain finds too much sensory input overwhelming, but then it has so much that it wants to get out. Finding the balance is and has been a lifelong quest for me. It's like waking up every day with this inner conflict of whether to go out and save the world or to savor it. And my self-discovery was one of the most discombobulating moments in my life, but equally the most affirming and profound because it really explains so much of what I'd struggled with throughout my life and why. But I was definitely in a state of shock How had I managed to keep this fundamental part of who I am behind a mask for so long? Why had I done that? And why didn't anyone else see the struggles behind the mask? There were many light bulb moments for me during the last few years. One of those moments was discovering that not everyone finds eye contact uncomfortable, intense and overwhelming, and that they don't avoid it wherever possible. Yet this has been my internal experience for as long as I can remember. I've learned to do it, and I do do it, and I can do it, but I find it awkward and intense. We normalize our experiences, our human experience, because they are how we experience the world. And it's not until you start hearing other people sharing their autistic experiences that you begin to realize that you are indeed not alone. But I was never exposed to these experiences until the last few years. During my own self-discovery journey, I had conversations with my parents about how I was as a child. Did they notice anything different about me? And my parents didn't know what autism was or how it presented in girls back in the 70s and the 80s. And I know that they wouldn't have seen it because our understanding of autism is largely centred on the narrative that we've been fed Historically from the autism research on mainly white cisgender males, which has categorically and systematically failed to explore and center the inner lived experience of autistic girls and women, resulting in a gender biased diagnostic criteria and a stereotype to match. And even I didn't see it. It took others to hold up a mirror to me to help me see myself from a perspective that I've never seen myself from before. So I was a highly sensitive child who had epilepsy, an aversion to noise, chronic ear infections and speech and language problems. And as a child, I would get my words jumbled up and I struggled with my pronunciation, which still happens now in some situations. Although I try my hardest to overcome that as much as I can and I'm trying my hardest on this podcast To overcome that as much as I can. I struggle to recall words and I struggle to get them in the right order which means that I have to work really really hard on my speech and my pronunciation and whilst this hasn't ever stopped me in my career it has meant finding workarounds for those situations which for me means I have to script everything I want to say just in case Which meant that when I did that three-year stint on the radio, on BBC Radio Leeds, or I'm speaking on a panel, or I'm delivering a presentation, or I'm speaking on a podcast, or I'm public speaking somewhere, I have to spend hours and hours prepping for a 10-15 minute piece, and I have to have visual cues and scripts. Everyone sees the delivery but nobody has a glimpse into my inner world and the sheer effort it takes me. It can feel like my starting point is always way back than others and that I have to put in so much more effort just to appear good enough. That really is an exhausting way to live and it's always felt so difficult to show up and to be the person I know I can be. It's a huge energy surge which then leaves me feeling drained and I know now that I have to be really, really selective in what I say yes to. But what I do recognise over the last couple of years is that the shift to more digital working has actually really helped me in many situations. It definitely helped me doing my psychology masters as a remote masters. I never signed up to do my masters remotely. But I found studying in the pandemic and being able to attend lectures from the comfort of my own office a much easier experience. As a child, I spent a lot of time in my own world, preferring to play on my own. And I was a child who was bullied at primary school and high school, uh, both physically and verbally, because, well, I guess I was different. And whilst I love people and I love nothing more than a deep conversation, which is why I inadvertently chose a career as being a therapist, I find big group dynamics exhausting and overwhelming and I find small talk without purpose such an effort. And it's not that I can't do them because I do do them, but I have to endure them because of how they make me feel. So I can see now why, as a child, I would seek the safety of retreating into my own world. Not because of what society would deem as being a deficit in my ability to socialise, because I enjoy socialising, but because the world can feel too much when your sensory system reacts in the way that mine does to the world. So spending time in an environment that feels sensory neutral equals safety. I much much prefer spending time with people on a one-to-one or in a small group because there's less to process but I recognize even then I still need that space and solitude to decompress and recalibrate. I need calm both visually and auditory in my environment and a clutter-free life and I thrive on routine and structure but the conflict for me here is that I also massively crave change I find utter joy and peace in swimming and in Vedic meditation and drawing and running until my hips had other ideas. And I recognise that they're all, they're all very solitary things that I find joy and peace in doing. I read non-fiction. I prefer real life stories to imaginary ones. I've never really got comedy, and I struggle to watch anything that isn't deeply engaging and emotional, or science fiction, or war, or apocalyptic themed. I've had a 25 year love affair with all things psychology, people, and human behavior. And if you asked me to talk about that, I would talk forever. My favorite place in the world is Copenhagen. Simple Scandi interiors are a sensory delight, and I love the cold. And colorful, monochromatic dressing is my thing. I find that visually um, just so soothing. And the whole myth that autism equals a lack of empathy really is not my experience. I've yet to meet an autistic woman who lacks empathy. It's the reverse. My empathy thermostat is dialed up really high I've always struggled with getting to sleep and transitioning to sleep mode. I'm massively scared of the dark. I've suffered with night terrors since being little and my brain takes forever to switch off. But learning how to meditate through my Vedic meditation practice has definitely helped me on the sleep front. I recognise I need complete quiet and calm to sleep and to work which is why in my old working world, the travel, the overnight hotel stays that I had no say or choice over in where they were or uh, what the room was like or where it was located and open plan offices all had such an impact on my nervous system. And it's why I recognize I need autonomy over the where and the how now to make it a more sensory friendly experience for me. And it makes me think back to being a child. I can understand now why I had those big emotional overspills, which were always just me breaking down into tears, and why I would try to elope in situations at school and at home where there was just too much sensory input or, or where there was a feeling of rejection or that I'd done something wrong and why navigating friendships was so complex. Without an understanding back then of, of why... I had no frame of reference as to why or what might help. I suppose the label I was given is one of a highly sensitive child. So, what I did was I tried my hardest to fit in and over time to avoid or to heavily mask in the situations that might trigger those overspills. I find noise distracting and certain noises painful and stressful. So, for example, for me, sitting in the hairdressers, or commuting on a train, I can hear every conversation and every sound. It's sensory overload and it's, it's really distracting. And I can't focus if there are multiple sounds and I find it quite painful. So I now take my earplugs everywhere with me and try wherever possible to reduce those multiple sources of sounds. And I can think back to being a teenager, how I was never without my Walkman and headphones. My mind works at 100 miles an hour. It sees endless possibility. It sees words as data, patterns in people's stories, and it is full to the brim of creativity and ideas. If you were to ask me to start a business today, I would have the name, the domain, um, an outline, some aims, and probably the website copy with you by close of play. And I now have an ideas journal, a place where I find I just have to dump my next big idea or next series of ideas rather than acting on them. And I have far too many domain names that I have bought, that I own for businesses. The reality is that I'm never going to start, but there's something about the dopamine high my brain gets from creating something and from idea generation and trying to find solutions to problems. I've really struggled with the language and the narrative around autism and ADHD because I don't have an attention deficit, rather I have an abundance of attention that I want to give to multiple things. My brain is in constant creative flow and I'm never ever just focusing on one thing So my struggle and my challenge in my life has been finding an outlet in which to direct that attention and energy because it's an ever-present challenge every day. I have been told throughout my life that I'm too much, I'm too focused, I'm very driven. I hear, Catherine, I can't keep up with you, you never sit still, you never stop. And I realise now that's because my brain diverges from the norm. And I don't see this as a deficit, as others have viewed this or framed this, or something that I should be ashamed of, or something that I should hide away from from view. I see this as one of my incredible ADHD strengths. And I have this theory that my brain seeks safety in things and depends on structure and routine and sameness in my daily life in order to reduce the load in my daily executive functioning. And I call this my spiky cognitive profile. So following instructions, packing to travel, uh, menu planning, Christmas shopping, what we're gonna eat for dinner tomorrow, anything that involves having to plan ahead is an executive function I really struggle with. And I've had to find workarounds and ways of being able to manage that in my life. And I find safety and comfort in eating the same foods on repeat. Not because I'm fussy or restrictive, but because I have safe foods that work with my highly sensitive gut. And I can't tell you how many times I've got lost as an adult because I can't follow a map or follow step-by-step instructions, possibly a thread for another episode. It took me seven attempts to pass my driving test. And it's always been something that I have talked about and kind of laughed about um, but the reality is is that in in one of those failed attempts I had gone the wrong way up a one-way street because I found having to listen to instructions while simultaneously doing it was just too overwhelming my mind struggles with following verbal sequences and, and steps and You know, passing my driving test shouldn't have been that hard. It shouldn't have been such a struggle, but it was. And I have a history of failing exams because my memory recall always lets me down. I'm terrible at quizzes because I can't recall those facts. And I have always struggled with interviews because the ability to listen to the question and maintain eye contact, and then search my evidence database for an appropriate answer is something I find really difficult. And again, it's not stopped me progressing my career. It's meant I've had to find workarounds. I'm definitely team words over team numbers. I wouldn't say I'm great at maths and statistics and anything that has a string of multiple verbal instructions. I struggled massively with the quantitative research element in my psych masters. And I failed my stats exam and couldn't bring myself to attempt to resit it, which meant me missing out on achieving a first class master's overall. Yet I wrote a first class psych master's thesis in less than a week, and I achieved first class marks in all of my written work work where I could be creative and not about being tested on my memory recall ability and I discovered a passion for thematic analysis as a tool of finding patterns in narrative data. My mind works in pictures, I'm a visual thinker, so able to explain the most complex of things in a simple framework or picture, and I see patterns in people's stories. And being a visual thinker is a strength that I'm able to nurture in my work as a therapist, and it's something I get to embrace in the therapy room, weaving my creative and very visual mind into my practice. And in my sessions, that can look like drawing a picture or describing something visually and metaphorically. It can mean creating frameworks, paradigms, or using visual-based narrative exercises to aid in self-discovery and self-understanding, which all helps my clients with seeing things, the world and themselves through a compassionate lens and a different perspective. And I think that sameness from what I eat to the music that I listen to and repeat enables me to self-manage my energy supply. And it's that sameness in these aspects of my daily life that makes way for the creativity, for the ideas, for the deep thought, for the patterns, for the hyper-focus, the feelings and the empathy. The most challenging part for me has been the blindfold coming off and then back-cataloguing my life through a completely different lens and the loss that I experienced as I realised the missed knowledge and opportunities that might have been there for adaptations, for adjustments that might have resulted in my life not feeling so difficult and perhaps not attempting or me not attempting to close the book on my story in my late teens. And my journal bore the brunt of this unravelling. I found journaling such a therapeutic process. I think it's a really underrated therapeutic tool on the self-discovery journey there were plenty of aha moments, but also a lot of sadness for having to navigate life for over four decades without the knowledge that I now have and the constant questions of, I don't know what I did wrong, or why don't I fit, or why, why will my brain never stop? That self-discovery um, for me felt like my tolerance and my masking ability became much harder to maintain and enforce the sense that I was becoming more autistic when in fact it was there all along and being aware that I had in fact been masking my way through life and situations I really started to question my why and for who Um, it's an unravelling like no other and it's so often done in isolation because that type of self-discovery therapeutic support in my experience It doesn't exist, not as a mainstream offer. And the best part about my self-discovery has been accepting myself for who I am, meeting myself where I'm at, and it's felt like taking a pumice stone to a lifetime of shame. Understanding my struggles and giving them the airtime and the acceptance that they've always needed and always deserved has meant that I can make empowering choices and adapt my life around my knees, something that I realise I've been doing right throughout my life. It means I can seek out adjustments where I need them, and I recognise that those adjustments might not always be met, but I can seek them out, and that I can focus on nurturing my strengths rather than constantly pressing the override button on my nervous system to fit in. And as I've begun to delicately peel back the layers of the mask that I've had to wear, I'm definitely living and experiencing my life in a much more sensory-friendly way. And I find myself being acutely aware now and highly observant of the sensory sensitivities around me. And I find myself saying out loud or to myself, that noise really hurts, um, or I don't like the texture of that, or this is making me feel really uncomfortable. It's also meant a lot of self-forgiveness and some huge dollops of self-compassion. As with many of the stories that I've heard from late discovered women, I've been unable to access an autism or an ADHD diagnosis via the NHS. I'm one of many women who self-identifies as ADHD. And this wasn't a conclusion that I came to on a whim or because there's a trend um, or because I watched a TikTok video. It's something I've spent hundreds of hours, more than hundreds of hours exploring, and I have effectively guided myself through my own self-discovery, just as I would help somebody on their own self-discovery. For me personally right now, I'm not sure that paying thousands of pounds for a formal diagnosis would change anything for me at this point in my life. Although I recognise that if I'd have known, it would have helped me as a young adult and a child. It would have helped me to... For me to understand me and to help me navigate friendships, relationships, the world of work, my studies, and, and life generally, I really, I really wish I had this level of understanding about myself much earlier in my life, but how would I have known when the internal worlds and experiences of autistic women and girls are hidden from the narrative that we've all been fed? i found that I've had to push through the uncomfortableness of self-disclosure because I don't want to live my life hidden behind a mask anymore. And it's not that I'm uncomfortable about who I am, but I would be naive to think that others will show the same level of acceptance given the stigma that exists around autism. And I'm at peace with the idea of someone changing their opinion about me based on my disclosure, but I am still me. You know, I'm still Catherine. This is how I have lived my life. It's just now that self-applying that label for me has been really liberating. I know now that my brain works a bit differently, but that it doesn't mean that I'm any less. But I know that for many women, self-disclosure is not a safe thing to do. It doesn't feel safe, and it isn't safe, because self-disclosure in an environment where there's little to no understanding and where acceptance and inclusion is not high on the agenda it can be seriously career limiting and weaponized against you asking for adjustments can be seen as a weakness needing and requesting accommodations seen as being inflexible although you've been too much and there's still so much more to do in terms of inclusion in our workplaces, but not just our workplaces, in our families and in our communities on reducing the stigma and changing that stereotype that people have. And what I found as I self-disclose is, but Catherine, I don't see it, or, but you don't look autistic, or, but Catherine, you're too successful to be autistic. And Autism does not have a look. I am an autistic woman who experiences and feels the world deeply in every sense, and my sensitivity and empathy thermostat is dialed up high, and that means that the world can feel too much. And I have big emotions that often become overwhelming, but you don't see that because it happens internally, and the overspill happens out of sight. I've had to find elaborate and exhausting inner workarounds and mask my way through life and girls tend to mask from a very early age that's you know we understand that girls do that from such an early age and I call it the Goldilocks effect you know we grew up on the fairy tale of Goldilocks and the three bears of how Goldilocks needed everything to be just right from, you know, the temperature of her porridge to the texture of it to how her bed felt to how big the chair was. And maybe Goldilocks was an undiscovered neurodivergent girl seeking safety in her environment. But what happens is that when we are seen as being too much, too difficult, too sensitive, uh, too many needs, we learn to mask from an early age. We're socialized and conditioned to do that. As human beings because at the center of all human experience is the need for acceptance and the need for safety and the need for belonging and we become very attuned to responses to those needs so when we see your eye rolls or we hear your sighs when we see your body language we can hear it in the tone of your voice we see it in your actions Which brings me on to why this podcast matters. And late discovery at the point of a child's diagnosis is what I see in a lot, but not all, but a lot of the autistic women's stories that I've heard. We go under the radar because the stereotypical presentation of autism is male biased, with on average three times more boys than girls being diagnosed. And there are so many barriers to getting a diagnosis, so many barriers, that women have they have no choice but to self-identify. So our stories and our experiences, they go unheard and they remain undiscovered and we remain misunderstood. But self-identifying, self-diagnosis, it, it is valid. It is absolutely valid. The consequences of this gender bias are absolutely staggering. Evidence, research shows that women who go undiagnosed, who live with a lifetime of misunderstood and unmet needs, along with all the masking to fit in, are at an increased risk of dying by suicide, in addition to ongoing and misattributed mental health issues. We know that autistic adults, particularly women, are more likely to experience chronic ill health than the general population. And I hear and see a familiar pattern of chronic ill health of inflammatory conditions, of um, irritable bowel syndrome, of fibromyalgia, of chronic UTIs, and of ME in the stories I hear. But these are never connected up because we're talking here about women who are late discovered. So why would anybody be making the link between chronic ill health and autism when women can't access an autism diagnosis in the first place? And whilst research into developing a unique female profile of autism is in its early stages, there is an evidence base emerging of how autism presents differently in females. So gaining insights into our individual experiences and our stories and our coping mechanisms, along with our strengths and our struggles, um, is a key area which has been identified by the autistic community themselves to be addressed by research. Because we are experts by experience here. We have unique lived insights and experiences so really should be at the forefront of person-centred research to help further our understanding, to help co-design affirming therapeutic support and suicide prevention services and all the wider societal psychoeducation into the unique profile of autism and, and how it presents in women and girls. And you can probably tell that this is an area that I'm hugely passionate and hugely knowledgeable about. And this is what I hope to focus my thesis on in my doctorate, my psychology doctorate. But the reality is that despite putting myself through the ordeal of an interview and being offered a place to study down in London with the Metanoia Institute, I have to accept that doing a doctorate in that way and travelling down to London for four years would just be too much for me. And, you know, pre-discovered me would have shamed myself into doing it. Pre-discovered me would have said, Catherine, just put on the mask, push on through. Come on, you can do it. Everybody else is doing it. Um, and we'll just deal with the consequences later. And Late Discovered Me knows the price that I will pay to do that. And, and it doesn't feel like it's something that I want to do that's particularly accessible. The compassionate part of me is saying, Catherine, let's listen to your body. and Maybe let's try another more kinder way of doing this. Let's find a workaround. Let's find a different kind of solution. So I've created the Late Discovered Club because this way I get to reach significantly more women. I get to hear many, many more stories through this podcast, through the um, circles that I facilitate. And maybe, not maybe, I will write a book instead of a doctoral thesis. One thing I know for sure is that we have got to shine a light on these stories because... Every single autistic experience is a completely unique human experience. It's a kaleidoscope of colors and flavors. And if you've met one human being, you've met one human being. And that's no different for a human being who is autistic. I want to discover and hear the women who have had to navigate life behind a mask because our stories matter. My story matters. Your story matters. Educating people matters changing the narrative matters. And I hope that this podcast is going to do exactly that. It's going to give late discovered autistic women a voice, bringing you compassionate conversations with some incredible autistic women. And now I find myself immersed in the world of women and girls and autism, trying to be the change in my own very small way. And, you know, there's a couple of things that I'm doing. So I have created my SASA framework, as a tool in therapy to help women on their self-discovery journey to compassionately unmask. And I recognized and see that it's also a neuroaffirming tool for parents and workplaces that can be used to support and to strength nurture and to create and accommodate more sensory-friendly environments. And I've created the group support circles that I facilitate designed to help women navigate their self-discovery journeys and connect with other women because it's a lonely space to be. There is a distinct lack of any sort of therapeutic or peer-led support. And circle number three starts in January 2023. I have created Ally which is an autistic peer support network in my hometown for autistic girls and their families that I set up to help bring people together, because community really matters. And I'm being brave and incredibly vulnerable in my own efforts to lead that change. But collectively and individually, we need to do so much more. We need more psychoeducation and understanding of what autism is and how it presents in girls and women. And these conversations need to happen. They need to happen in so many places. And they need to keep happening to help destigmatize autism. And the stereotypes people have, they've got to shift and they've got to be changed. We need more neuroaffirming and inclusive workplaces that feel psychologically safe places in which to self-disclose and request adjustments. Women should not feel that disclosure is a career-limiting choice and fear shouldn't be a barrier to seeking out adjustments. We need people to listen to actually autistic voices, especially the late discovered generation of women's voices and stories. And our experiences need to be out there in the world, further shaping our understanding of what autism looks like in women. We need allyship, we need more representation of um, autistic women on boards, in the media, in leadership and political roles, and we need people and decision makers, health professionals, strategists, policymakers, politicians to listen and to take action to close the gap when it comes to autism and women's health, because we matter, you matter, and our stories and our experiences matter. And I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. And I'm changing the things I cannot accept. We all have a responsibility. And I want you to take this first episode as a call to action. What can you do to be the change?